0: We're in the life of Christ, and you know it takes about three, three and a half years that he did his ministry, and some of you think I'm doing it that long, uh, which is okay too. We are in the last week, his passion week during the life of Christ, and what we have talked about, let me catch the scene of Matthew 26, That Sunday before, which we're going to be looking at next week, we call it what Sunday? Palm, Palm Sunday, because it's the Sunday when he did what? The trial, Oh, there I got it on the board, what am I talking about? Okay, triumphal entry takes place on Sunday then on Monday of that week he goes back into the city and he cleanses the temple. It's a big fiasco takes place it's going to upset all the leaders and possibly on Monday what happens between Monday and Tuesday is when he's going in and out of the city going back and forth to Bethany a town that's just outside the city by a couple miles that what happens is they pass the fig tree. He curses the fig tree because it doesn't have real fruit it looks like it because it has leaves but it it's, doesn't have real fruit so he curses it. They come back then they the next day and the tree is dead and he uses it to teach lessons be basically a picture of Israel. They look good on the outside but there's no fruit on the inside. During that Monday, Tuesday, we don't know which day but probably Monday that he meets up with a number of Gentiles or Greeks that are there also and they want to see Jesus. They ask him some questions and so that stirs up the crowd as well. Now Tuesday is his busy day. This we know happens on that Tuesday is that he comes from Bethany into Jerusalem and that's when he teaches the follow-up about the fig tree. We know that when he gets into the city, this is the day where all those challenges like, whose authority do you do this? You know, who gave you the authority to teach? And he responds, who gave John the authority? You know, was he a prophet? Um, you know, should we pay taxes to the Romans? And so he answers that. Uh, the story, this woman's married to seven brothers and there wasn't seven brides. For seven brothers there was just one bride. And she went through all seven brothers. And by Jewish practice, you would have run from that woman. By normal practice, you'd run from that woman. that killed off, or I mean, seven of her husbands died. And, uh, and so they use that story, and they ask, whose wife will she be in eternity? And so he answers those types of questions. Somewhere on Tuesday, he's observing worship at the temple and comments on the woman who puts in all of her money. And then he has time when he's walking out of the city, he's mourning over the city. He weeps over the city. And as he is exiting the city and we don't know if it's headed back towards Bethany uh, for the night or towards the uh, Mount of Olives where he spends the night maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane he spends uh, that last evening. We don't know exactly which. But he talks about the city as they're passing by and leaving and they're commenting on how beautiful the city is and he gives what's called the Olivet Discourse. And this Olivet Discourse he's starting to talk about this city is going to be destroyed. And they respond, they say oh if the city is going to be destroyed which they knew from Daniel, then that means your kingdom must be coming. And so they start asking him questions. When is the kingdom? Are we going to see it here soon? Are you going to establish it? And he starts giving details and he gives them facts, Matthew 24 and 25. He fills in all the prophetic information about before the kingdom gets set up, it's not going to be right away, but there's going to be this, this, this. And he gives them future historical events that are future to us. And he has a lengthy discussion. And then as he's winding it down, giving the facts. He says in that light of all that, and he spends about a a chapter and a half talking in light of that, here's what you should do. You should watch. You should be ready. As in the days of Noah, they weren't prepared. So also the coming of the Son of Man. He's going to come like a thief Okay, and he gives them all that information and that and that, uh, that challenge to be ready to be ready. And on top of that, he adds a couple parables, parables that talk about rewards that are going to take place, about being ready and having your lamps uh, filled with oil. And so he's challenging. He's challenging. And he goes on after he gives them challenge, he gives them another couple details. He talks about when he comes back, he's going to not right before he sets up the kingdom, he's going to also have a judgment of all all the different people in the nations upon the world at that time and it's called the sheep goat judgment. So he's given them all this information and he's talking about it. And as he's winding down this conversation, we come to Matthew 26. Verse 1. He's given all kinds of long distance prophecies but now he reverts to a short distance prophecy. Look at Matthew twenty-six one. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings he said to his disciples. Now watch what he does. He says you know that after two days is the feast of Passover. They would have said yeah yep that's true. And he says the son of man is betrayed to be crucified. And so in this little tidbit of information he's giving not long distance or down the road prophecies he's giving what's going to happen in the next couple days. And he's telling them some very, very important information about what's going to be taking place and that is this. He tells them I'm going to die. He tells them it's going to happen in a couple days uh, during the feast of Passover and somebody, and you compare the other gospels, one of them is going to betray them and he's going to die by crucifixion. There's a lot of detail that he gives them. And so they're kind of caught off guard but they don't get it all. Okay? Somebody's betraying. He's going to be crucified. It's going to happen within the next couple of days. And But they're still thinking kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. They're thinking rewards. And it doesn't fully sit in. And so in the meantime, okay, now Matthew gives us, okay, this is Jesus talking to the disciples. And Matthew unveils there's another group of people that are walking and talking or sitting and talking, and it's the Pharisees. Watch what he gives us details. He said, Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest Caiaphas, and they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be a riot among the people. And so they agreed, They got to get Jesus. We got to kill him. We got to get rid of him. But they feared the people. Luke 22 makes the statement. They are so afraid of the crowd. We're going to wait until the crowd dies down after Passover. And so they're going to wait, but here Matthew, here Luke. They give us a little bit more information. They go on and they say, okay, we're going to jump down to verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest while they're meeting. Judas goes and meets with them. And they, he said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him or Jesus unto you. And they covenanted or they contracted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray Jesus. So this is happening Tuesday night. Tuesday night then Judas is, is going to go and meet them. Now here's the points we made the last time we were talking. He's not forced Do not make the mistake that some liberals would or some Bible critics that Judas was, he was kind of caught off guard. No, Judas is going of his own initiative. He is seeking out. He's the aggressor seeking to find out. They didn't approach him, he approached them to find out how he might betray Jesus. He's very conniving. Now our questions that we talked about here last time we met was, why would Judas do this? After following Jesus for a year and a half two years maybe, why does he all of a sudden betray Jesus? Now the Bible gives us a little bit of information. It tells us in Luke 22 verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas at that time. So we know there's the spiritual battle. We also know this, that just before, and Matthew puts it right here in this paragraph. If we're reading in Matthew, verses 6 through 13 puts the foot washing experience there at that same moment. We, uh, by showing you from John, John makes clear by giving you the exact date it happened before Palm Sunday. It's a Saturday night event. And Matthew puts it right in here because thematically he's going to contrast what's happening between Judas and other disciples, like the woman who was willing to go the extreme to wash his feet. And so what you have here is you have Judas there at that foot washing on Saturday night and when that woman broke the alabaster box and she poured out the ointment on Jesus' feet, one of the disciples said, why was this, do you remember the word that's used? This waste of ointment done this way. He considered this to be a wasteful, extravagant, extreme and he says it could have been, to cover up his comment what's he say? It could have been sold and the money used for the poor. But when that statement's recorded it also John records but Judas was a a thief and he was stealing from the treasury that Jesus and his disciples had and the, from the bag. And so Judas was rebuked at that point. Jesus said, let her alone. Um, you know, what she hath done, she hath done good to me. And so he's rebuked. He's not only rebuked and kind of put off by Jesus for his greed, but it's also revealed that, hey, Jesus isn't about making money but Judas is. And so Judas, by this response, he wants to make some profit. He asks, by going to them, he says, what would you give me? What would you give me? Judas is following Jesus for the money. Can you imagine people going to church because they want to get some benefit out of it? Isn't that, you can't, you can't believe people would do that, can you? Or does it ever happen in our culture? Do people ever, do people ever look at God as a bank account? Okay, I'll serve you if. Okay, and so that's where Judas was. And Judas agrees for 30 pieces of silver, which we're going to come back to. What's the song say? 30 pieces of silver, just the price of a slave. Nobody's heard that song. Okay, Um, And so you have him doing, I'll, I'll come back to that 30 pieces. Here's the point. Judas is disenchanted with Jesus. He is upset. There's a spiritual battle taking place. Whatever combination of reasons he is motivated that he takes the initiative, he contacts them. He betrays. Now here's where we, uh, here's where we wrapped up last time. Where it says in the passage, from the, in verse 16 of Matthew 26, from that time he seeks to betray, exactly what does that mean? Let's go back into, into Scripture and compare. He is going to look for an opportunity in the absence of the multitude to get Jesus arrested. Okay, By coming to them <clears throat> what this does is it changes the plans. Okay? They were going to wait until when? The leaders were going to wait until when to arrest Jesus or get him? After Pentecost. Okay, the Passover, excuse me. And Judas moves the timetable, which is, by the way, does it have to happen around Passover or before Passover? yes because of symbolic biblical prophecy and so the time changed uh, changes i put this up again in roman society in roman judicial system somebody just couldn't be arrested you know, and then that's taken care of. Now, from nobility or emperor or governor, they could do it. But on a common class basis, what you would have to do is you would have to, if you're going to, if you're going to say we're going to get somebody and turn them over, you've got to turn state's evidence. So apparently, Judas not only agreed to get Jesus arrested, but he would be willing to turn state's evidence against Jesus. So there's more involved here than just okay, um, you know, I'll show you where you can get them, and then I'm going to. Fly the idea apparently is, okay, apparently is Judas is going to turn to evidence. By the way, do they have a problem getting reliable witnesses against Jesus when he goes to trial? Yeah, what do, what do they end up having? People that are contradicting, making up things. Well, they lost Judas because what happens to Judas before they, you know, shortly after they arrest him. Okay, he hangs himself. So there goes their star witness. And so they have to, they have to you know, come up with something. The, the point is, Judas is, th- this is a full betrayal. A full denial, full betrayal is not just, okay, I'm going to tell you where they are and I'm going to collect the reward in private later on. He's apparently going to be the public witness as well. Um, and so he's looking for the communion time. Now Judas then, okay, he had left the group now, let's put yourselves, let's put yourselves in this scenario. We are sitting, let's, let's pick We're at Garden of Gethsemane, okay, or outside the city, near the Mount of Olives, and that's where we're camping out. Jesus has talked. Jesus has said, I'm going to be betrayed, okay? He's made that statement. Uh, he said, in two days, basically, I'm going to die. So you're sitting here mulling this over, and all of a sudden, Judas gets up and says, I need to leave. How is it Judas gets away and nobody tackles him? Nobody takes him out? Why is it the tw- of the other 12 nobody challenges we don't get any why didn't they you know and we know the Jewish leaders are have made it clear they want to get Jesus He's, he's stopped their money trade. He's, you know, disrupted everything. They've been wanting to kill him for the last six weeks since the last feast day. The feast of the tabernacles just the last two months. And they wanted to kill him. They took up stones to kill him at that time. And so they've been making it clear we're against Jesus. And anybody for Jesus kicked out of the synagogue. Um, so it's been a tough time. Now Judas, after, just after Jesus says, I'm going to be, be betrayed, Judas gets up and leaves. Why is it none of the disciples stopped him and said, where are you going? Or we're going to go with you. Okay. Why do you think nobody did anything? Okay. You know, that's in, the, that's in the meal. The Passover meal, he leaves in the Passover meal. Again, Jesus says, whatsoever you do, do. Okay. And he gets up and leaves. Okay. And when he does that, they think he's going out to take care of the charity for the poor to get them food. That's the spot where it's clearly stated that they think, why don't, what about this one? It could be that. Maybe they think that. But let me throw something at you. Just keep in mind Judas is the only one of the 12 that's from this region, he's from the Judea region. The other 12 were from what area of Israel? Galilee. This is his home region. Now, put it together. If he's getting up and leaving the group for the night, why wouldn't you think anything of it? He's going to go where? He's going to go visit family. He's going to go spend the night with relatives. Wouldn't that make sense to you? Because isn't this a family feast time for Passover? Passover. So Judas Judas being the one, he's from this region. Family is probably in this region since this is his home area. So it wouldn't be any kind of conflict in their mind that he's going to go and he's gone until early morning. Why would you be upset with Judas? He's, he's going to visit family. And so you wouldn't think anything about it. It is clever how Satan, Satan uses the individuals that have all the seemingly... You know, they can get away with things, okay? And so Judas is doing that. Now, the 30 pieces of silver, okay, that there's a song that I remember from years ago that's 30 pieces of silver, just the price of the slave. Da, da, da. Where does that come from? It comes from all the way back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. 30 pieces of silver is not a lot of money, okay? But according to Exodus 31, it is the, it is the price you would pay if one of your servants uh, let's rephrase that. If one of your animals killed somebody else's slave, somebody else's servant, you had to make compensation. And it was 30 pieces of silver. And so be with inflation, things of that sort, it didn't change. By the time of the New Testament, it's basically the price of the slave that if something happened while you had the slave in your watch or you ran over him, or whatever, this is what you make compensation for the low price of a slave. Now, it shows up in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, a prophet in the Old Testament during that time when they were rebuilding, Jerusalem. He comes to the leaders and he says, okay, I've, I've been watching your sheep. He's doing a, um, uh, a living parable. He's been watching the sheep, so to speak, of all the rulers. And he comes in and he says, okay, what would you pay me for watching your sheep, for taking care of your flock? And uh, they respond by saying, we're going to pay you 30 pieces of silver for doing this job. His response is, oh, that's a really cheap inexpensive price, but he uses in the King James, he uses the phrase a handsome price. It is not a complimentary thing like, wow, that's a lot of money. It's the idea of, boy, that kind of looks good. It's a very sarcastic way of saying it, that it's not much. It's the price of a slave. Then in Zechariah, he makes the comment, he goes a little bit further because it's such a disgusting amount, that he's told by God, throw it into the potter's charity fund in the temple. Okay, does anybody see any ties here? Where does Judas' money end up? Okay, it ends up buying a what? a potter's field, okay? And so Zechariah uses all this and he uses it as a picture, a portrayal of what's going to happen to Jesus in several centuries after Zechariah's life <clears throat> in about three, four hundred years later. He's basically saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. The, there's going to be a betrayal. The people won't appreciate. They'll pay 30 pieces of silver and the money's going to end up basically in, in potter's field, okay, uh, in that area. And so it's a prediction. It's a fulfillment that comes later of how they're going to treat Messiah, Messiah. And it fulfills that all of a sudden they pay 30 pieces of silver to Judas. Now let's make some comments on just this part of the story. Not all followers of Christ are real followers of Christ. In other words we can make it this way. Not everybody who goes to church is a real okay real Christian they're a real church goer but they may not be truly born again that that we understand someone exposed to the gospel repeatedly can become very hard hearted to the truth if they don't repent we've got that warning in scripture okay it talks about in Proverbs 1 about how God will laugh at your calamity after he's warned and warned and warned and warned and all of a sudden he'll send the whirlwind he'll send these other things because people just get hard hearted What's what's that phrase the same sun that melts the butter does what? it hardens the clay. Okay, that same conviction that somebody comes off to, that same conviction can all of a sudden harden somebody's heart and did with Judas. Okay, someone who is an active participant in Christian activity and ministry may not be born again. Do you have any other passage comes to mind that backs this up? That people can, can say, well, we've done this and we've done that and look at all the good things we've done, but they may not be born again. Do you remember any passage? Yeah, when he says, they will, will they not say unto me, Lord, Lord, have not we prophesied and cast out demons in your name, but I will say unto them, Depart from me, ye workers of doing your own thing, workers of iniquity, Matthew chapter 7, when he's given the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's make another comment, okay? Or they may turn against the Lord if their own personal lust go unchecked. We know that's true. We know that's a battle. Okay, We know this. When people give in to greed and bitterness... They do things that don't make sense. Have you ever seen Christians make dumb, dumb life decisions? No? Yeah? Okay. When, when gre- when, isn't it amazing how money can make people naive to do some dumb stuff? Okay, and so he's warning us about that that greed and bitterness let's go a little bit further it is interesting, this, this to me was interesting to consider how Satan may bring together depraved elements people or opportunities to bring about his working we often talk about the hand of God and how the hand of God worked in such a way to bring circumstances and people and everything together to bring about a choice a decision you've seen the hand of God work this way yes? That all things work. Can Satan also influence so that there is a conjunction of the planets to try to convince people this is a good thing to do? That may not be good. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to be discerning. We can't always go by circumstances. We've got to go by principles of the word of God. It is possible to fool a lot of people a lot of the time, but be sure your sin will find you out. Hyp- hypocrisy will be exposed in time. Another statement Jesus is unusually compassionate. Knowingly allow non-followers to be close to him. In fact let's, let's jump ahead. The night of the supper t- is taking place and it's going to happen on, on uh, as we'll, we'll start introducing in a few minutes. It's going to start on Thursday night. When that supper starts in the course of the meal Jesus hands Judas something do you remember what it is? That it says very specifically, he gives this to Judas. Yeah, it's the, it's the bread that's dipped. It's a SOP, sop. And in Jewish culture, you usually give it to the closest friends. Of, a, of, a, of a, an expression of endearment, you start, with, you start with the one who is closest to you. Or the one you're trying to honor the most if you're the host at that meal. And he gives it to Judas and then he says to Judas, whatever you do, do quickly. And then Judas gets up and leaves and that's when they think Judas is going out taking care of the poor. But Jesus is time and time and time again. Is Jesus aware that while Jesus is in um, the, uh, the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane, while he's there Tuesday night resting, is he aware that Judas is meeting with the Sanhedrin? Or did Jesus go to sleep and forget about it? He's aware because he knows, yeah, and yet when Judas comes back, he doesn't say, he's the betrayer. Now, now, if he said that, do you think the twelve would have done something about Judas? I mean, seriously, what does Peter do when he wakes out of a sound sleep and hears the soldiers coming? Is Peter bold? Remember? Remember? He pulls out his little switchblade and he attacks 600 men with a pocket knife. And what does he He misses the guy, kind of. Remember? Cuts off his ear. Do you think if Jesus said, Judas is the betrayer, do you think they would have, oh, okay. I don't think so. I get the impression that they at moments were extremely bold for Jesus. I think they would have severed him limb from limb from limb to try to prevent it. I mean, were they willing to prevent Jesus going to the cross? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Jesus doesn't say anything, but he knows it. Just compassion. Compassion, giving Judas an opportunity to repent. Okay? And again, I'm going back based on this. Judas is not an innocent pawn that's caught up in this whole story and he had no choice. I I totally, I totally reject that, that idea. Judas, though he's also spiritually influenced by Satan, Judas is the one who became the aggressor, the initiator. He knew what he was doing. He's willing to turn state's evidence. Judas is held responsible because Judas is guilty of the betrayal. He's not just a victim caught up in circumstances. It's his choice. And not only does he choose to make the initiation of this, Jesus is with him for the next two and a half days or one and a half days and jesus you know, Jesus knows what 's going on, and Judas knows what 's going on and Jesus is compassionate giving him opportunity opportunity to repent and he refuses. So Wednesday, here's a big question. What happens on Wednesday? Now there's lots of different ideas, okay, on Wednesday. This is where we get into and We won't do it today. But a lot of discussion is, well maybe this is the day of the crucifixion. Maybe this is the day of Passover. And there's a lot of different discussion of what happens Wednesday. And um, some say, well it fit the timetable. It must have been the day that he cleansed it because their goal is to make every day a busy day. Some will say, well this is the day he's crucified and it had to be Wednesday because he is three days and three nights in the tomb, therefore it happened to happen Wednesday, and you go back and go, wait 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 a minute, if if you're saying it can't be Friday, it can't be Wednesday for the same reasons, three days and three nights it's, you know, you take Wednesday all the way to Sunday morning, you've got more than three days and three nights happening, and so you have all this debate and confusion it seems, it seems the chronology works best this way, to understand that Wednesday was a day of rest Okay, He just had his busy, busy day. He just had traveled from Galilee that weekend, um, just wore out all the things that happened Tuesday. It's been a stressful time. Wednesday is okay. It's a day of just rest and quiet and preparation and meditation. And, it, and historically, this is kind of the day that families who came to Jerusalem, this is the day before the big event, before the Passover. And it's your day to just kind of get together, sit around, talk and prepare and plan and do minor preparations. Okay, and so it's a day of rest, and then Thursday and Friday become the days that are going to be the really, again, busy days for Jesus with Passover, and then he's arrested Then going into Friday is this day of crucifixion. We'll talk more about that as we go along. So we're up to Thursday morning, what you and I would call Thursday, break of dawn. Here's what's happening. If they're in or close to Jerusalem, that makes a lot of sense, okay, otherwise they had to come from Bethany early in the morning. And Jesus tells Peter and John, or Peter and, uh, I think it's John, yeah, he tells them to go and get ready for the Passover. And he tells them that what they need to do is they need to make preparations for the meal. Now understand how this meal operates. For you and I, before we get into discussing all the nuances, let's back up. Passover is important to the Jews. It's still an important feast to the Jews. It was often called, and you'll read in passages in the scripture, this phrase called the Paschal meal. That's not a different meal, okay? It's the same, the same meal with different terminology, Paschal or Passover, and you'll see it used interchangeably in scriptures that this is what we're talking about. This is the Passover supper that was taking place. The Jews were told that if they're coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, they need to eat the feast within the city gates. Now think this through. There's only so many rooms within Jerusalem. Okay? And so they've got to get all these rooms for this, all these different visitors. If you lived in Jerusalem, what could you do at this time? You could make, you could do what? You could make a lot of money. You could make, By doing what? Yeah, yeah. Let your home, You rent out the rooms. Rent out the rooms. Why? Because each family unit needs to have their own room. So, you know, to say, oh, they wouldn't do that. People wouldn't do that for a a religious festival. All of a sudden, turn around and rent their rooms for multiple prices. Yeah. Yeah, they would. Okay. I mean, would we do that? Yeah, we would. Okay. Yeah, that's, just, that's just part of the way it worked. And so all these people are coming, they're going to get rooms, which, which by the way makes it very interesting when Jesus says, oh, go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a pot of water. Say to him, the master, where's the master going to hold Passover? Okay. Considering all these thousands and thousands of rooms have to be rented out. Customary, you eat it in the evening. Okay, we'll talk about it in a moment that what they would do is they would signal. There would be the loud trumpets blowing, beginning of the Passover meal, and then blowing later on the end of the Passover meal. So citywide, everybody's celebrating it at basic same time. The idea was not overly large groups. You would have your family unit or those you invited in, and smaller groups of, you know, whether it be you know six, eight, 10, twelve, twenty, twenty-four uh, twenty-four, somewhere in there. Preparations were very, very specified in Jewish rule the Pharisees had everything written out. How to, what plates to use, how to wash the plates, how to prepare, how you were supposed to get yourself ready. Oh, by the way, you have to cut your fingernails, your toenails, you have to get your hair cut, you have to take a bath, Okay, and so all of this has to be taken care of. So there's a lot of activity going on through Thursday. And in the meantime, you also have to get down to the temple because what, what major part has to be taken care of Thursday afternoon? the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, which was done in assembly fashion, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs were done. So hundreds of priests were occupied and they kind of just did it in a slaughterhouse mentality, in, a, in an assembly line mentality to get this taken care of for all these people. And so Passover in Jerusalem, rooms are at a premium, water's at a premium, got to get that water early in the morning because there's the bathing, there's the cleansing, there's all that's taking place. So it's the city is is in, um, uh, let me see. The, the city of Jerusalem's really busy Thursday morning. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of people in the streets. And so Jesus says, okay, go into the city. And in Mark chapter 14, if you want to turn there, you'll see what it's basically happening. He says, when you go into the city, he says, look for a man. Okay? Look for a man who's carrying a pot of water. And you think in your mind, well, <laughs> you know, surely there's got to be a lot of men carrying a lot of pots of water. Really? Why is this so unusual to look for a man carrying the pot of water? That's a woman's job. You know, that's a woman's job. Men don't do that stuff. What are the men doing? They're watching the game. You know, early in the morning. Okay, this is ladies work to get the water. And so when they find that it's an unusual scene to see the guy go down to the well and get that because the well is the place of getting together, talking about and catching up with everything and so the man's there and he's saying Okay? That, that, you know, go and find this guy out. We're down in Mark chapter 14 down to uh, about verse 12. And he's saying, okay, first day of the unleavened day of bread when they, they killed the Passover he said, okay, uh, the disciples said, where are we going to eat Passover? He sends forth two. He says, go into the city. Here you'll find a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go, say to the good man of the house, the master says, where is the guest chamber? Where shall I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and then there you make things ready. The disciples went forth, came into the city and, and here's the key phrase. Here's the key phrase. They found as he had Okay, you say, well what's so unusual? This is very unusual. Rooms are at a premium. Okay, It's busy, busy, busy. They find the guy. They follow the guy. They say, okay, where can we have Passover? And they get a room. Really? They get a room at the last hour, so to speak. You know, it's like, it's a, we, we travel one time on, um, we left church service on Christmas Eve, and uh, we traveled to Minnesota. And we're driving, and it didn't dawn us that, hey, wait a minute, driving 24 hours to try to get to Minnesota, you know what? Christmas Day, what happens to most places? So do most gas stations. Okay, and in Wisconsin, there's no toll roads. And it was like, we're driving through Wisconsin, it was like, oh, wait a minute, it's Christmas Eve about two, one in the morning. Surely there's gas stations open, and the closer we got to empty... You know, there was everybody's closed at that time. You know, it was the last minute type stuff. We didn't run out. We found one little gas pump that was charging exorbitant prices that night. Okay. But we needed it. That's what kind of strikes me is last minute stuff. Here they go and they find this. And so they found this guy. It's very unusual. We already said. And Jesus told him to say this. Now, here's what we don't know. Okay. We don't know. Is this guy a servant or is the homeowner? We don't know, did Jesus already make plans with this guy before? We don't know, is this a disciple that when they said the master has need, he immediately turns over his room? we don't know any of those details. We don't know why, what was done beforehand. We just know it happened as Jesus said. And so the bottom line is they had a place to hold the meal. Why was it designed this way? Did Jesus make plans ahead of time or in sovereignty? He had placed it upon this heart or this guy was a disciple. Whatever happened they get the room. And the room that's at a premium they have it for that evening. And so now they have to make preparations. You're, you're Peter and John. You've got to make preparations. What, what kind of stuff are you going to do? Okay? You've got to get the place. Okay, Jesus took care of that. You've got to prepare the place. Now, to prepare the room, you have to purify the room. That includes the furniture, the table, everything in the room has got to be purified. Okay? You've got to make sure there's no crumbs of anything that's fermented or you get rid of all this unleavened stuff. You've got you to go through the place. You know how some people have, uh, what is a gluten? Um, Intolerance, okay, and sometimes, and uh, one of one of Christina's relatives has it so bad that that if she's if she's exposed to bread that was in the same toaster um, that was toasted and her toast gets put in there, just by that that is it celiac disease? Is am I saying that? Right? Okay, it is so that if she just has con- inner contamination of any sort, she gets violently sick. Okay. And so in in Bible terms, it was the idea. We can't have anything, even crumbs here. We've got to start everything fresh because otherwise we'll violate the Passover. And so all these rules... Okay, are very spelled out in the Jewish codes, and so you got to get any traces. You got to really clean the room because maybe the kid, you know, built their sippy cup and got something on it that shouldn't be in the room. So you've got to clean up everything. You got to clean the house. Got to clean everything. The vessels that you're using have to be cleaned, and it was very, very specially prescribed. You've got to first cleanse them in hot water, and then you have to have a whole nother container of cold, cold water. Otherwise it's not purified the proper way. So they had to do all that. You need to get your hair cut. You need to get your nails. You know, it's kinda like you know, Easter in in some areas. It's the new dress, the new outfit, the whole thing, the shebang. Okay, they're doing that. Okay, that's their Passover celebration. So all these people need to get personally ready and the room has to be readied. They gotta get their bed, their breads, whatever. The meal has to be taken care of. You gotta go out and you gotta purchase your other items, your the herbs, the vinegar, the fruits. That all has to be gotten for this meal. And again, you don't have a refrigerator. So remember, you're doing this shopping Thursday morning. The marketplace is busy, lots of activity. And then in the afternoon is when the sacrifices uh, started opening up. So you get down there, you make the sacrifice, the priests take their portion, you take your portion, you've got to take it back, and it's got to be cooked and prepared. And then you've got to set up the table, and then the trumpet sounds. We're getting now towards the end of the day. The sun is setting, now we're entering into Friday, Morning. Okay, uh, in Jewish culture, say it's six o'clock our time. That would be their Friday morning. Okay, Thursday night is done, so to speak. Uh, Now they're into Friday morning around six p.m., and uh, that means here we go. We're celebrating Passover, and the meal is starting. And so, what we want to make is some observations about Jesus and this feast. Jesus had no problem. This is this is a biblical fact. Okay, he had no problem observing the special religious holidays, even though they've been distorted. He had no problem going to the temple, even though it's been corrupted. Okay, he didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, he was distorted. He is going to go, he's going to celebrate and maintain the integrity of the feast day. He's going to maintain the real purpose, though others have abused it. And so he's going to use it as a point, a focal point of sharing the truth and getting to the gospel. Okay? So, unless some religious truth is severely compromised, he is still, and he did, he followed through with some of these. By the way, this continued in the book of Acts. Did Paul, even though they were separating now from a lot of the temple worship, did Paul still go to the temple and make worship? In the book of Acts? Yes or no? Yes he did. Remember he is arrested when he is where? He's in the temple and he has made a vow and he has shorn his head and he has others with him. They assume those others with him are Gentiles and that's why they arrest him. And that's where he ends up headed to Rome. So in the New Testament, even though they say we don't need the temple, we don't need that, they still they still were respectful of that and some, some of the worship practice that wasn't in violation, they still did. There's some of that cultural practice. Does that mean we should, here's a here's debate in Christian circles, does that mean we should adopt the Jewish holidays? That's the argument. They say, "Well, Paul did, Jesus did. We should also practice Jewish holidays." The reason for us to say no is we're not, we're not Jewish. We're not. We're, that's not even our culture. Okay, Some of that was very cultural. We don't need to abide by that okay, because of the different culture. Here's what happens now. We get into the Last Supper. It's Thursday. We call Thursday evening. Okay, They're Friday morning. Okay, They're going into the Last Supper. The meal has purposes. Okay, The meal is going to be celebrated. I'm hoping next year to get a fellow in that uh, we got in contact with to come in and right around this time of the year do this whole celebration just to give us more of an explanation and demonstration of all this. But the meal is designed for two main purposes. It's to be be a celebration. It's looking back at the freedom that they had when they left Egypt. And you know the whole story. The night before they left, they had the Passover lamb, and they put the blood on the doorpost, and then they they ate all the food and they were to be packed up, ready to go. And so that's the night of their deliverance. This is the anniversary of that deliverance, and we're going to look back at it. In fact, during the meal, the host was supposed to talk about the freedom that they enjoyed. He's supposed to make sure they relay some of the historical data, especially to the kids who are there, so it's a teachable moment talking about it. And some of the the elements the bitterness of the herbs were to show the bitterness of the captivity and to pass the story along it was also to look forward so it was a celebration looking back and it's a celebration of looking forward does that remind you of anything in church is there anything in church that looks back and also looks forward what, we, what we'll do this morning okay the same type of thing but we don't have a full meal theirs was is to look forward to the kingdom okay and so it's done annually to keep this in front of people to just say this is what God has done what God has done so it's an annual type thing that they would do and celebrate and so when the meal started there was a whole method to this meal okay and Jesus is going to do it now Jesus did it and these are his reasons one he's Jewish He's fulfilling obligations, okay? It gives him a moment with his disciples, his farewell meal to before he's going to suffer. He's going to be able to teach. He's going to be able to instruct. He's going to be able to encourage them. He's going to be able to reassure them of his help. He's going to talk about the kingdom that I'm going to eat this with you and the kingdom in the future. And most importantly, this meal, he's going to introduce his new covenant. Okay, That's what we celebrate is the introduction of the new covenant. Something different than what they've had. And he's going to make this a meal where he can show symbolically his death, his sacrifice. He's going to inform them about heaven, about the Holy Spirit, about prayer, about church, about loving one another. So Jesus is using this not only to fulfill his Jewish obligations and to fulfill the law, but he's preparing them for the future. Not only for his kingdom, but also. So, this is a very, very important meal to Jesus. By the way, before he institutes communion, here's a thought for you. Before communion starts, where he hands out the bread and the wine, who's in the room when that takes place? There's Jesus plus his disciples. Are all of the disciples there at the moment when he introduces communion? No. Who's gone? Judas is gone. What does that tell you about that, that part of the service? It's for who? It's for believers, okay? The communion is, speci- is, is specifically for believers who have, who have a, a taken in Christ already. And so the meal, by the way, just to blend this all together, okay, there's specifics there, but let, let me just give you generality uh, because we're not going to get real far here into John 13. But what you know about the meal Okay, is there a big difference in attitude and action by Jesus and the disciples? Or are they all kind of on the same plane? I contend, I contend they're not all thinking the same way. Okay, for instance, before the meal starts, what are the disciples talking about? Who is to be the greatest in the kingdom? Does Jesus have anything to do with, oh, let's talk about the greatest? Or what does he portray? They're concerned about who's, which one of them is the greatest. He's concerned about serving. They're concerned about all these different ideas. Okay, they're the ambition. They're looking for crowds. They're, you know. uh, He says, "You're going to deny me," and Peter says, "Although all of these will deny you, not me." And then it says they all said the same thing, and so they're all filled up with this this whole attitude about. You know me, my, and Jesus just totally opposite, totally opposite okay he 's the humility that just exudes from Jesus in this whole setting, and uh, as you go through the whole meal there's there 's a whole ritual okay. There's, there's a whole, whole way that it all works out and the different cups and, and all these different songs that are sung. So it's very customary. And they're following all the tradition. But in John 13, watch what John makes sure we understand. Let's, let's just get a very opening glimpse of the meal. They walk into that meal in John 13, and we hear a little bit of what's going on. In John 13, we, we pick up in the story that Jesus comes in. Now, just to remind you, as they've been, tra- they've been going, it's all been prepared. The Jesus and the other disciples are headed where Peter and John had it already. And in route, the disciples have an argument. According to Luke 22, they have an argument, which of them is the greatest? i, I got a question for you. Why are they arguing about who's the greatest at this time? What's that? What do you mean replacement? Okay, well, remember, they're debating whether or not he's leaving. He's telling them he's leaving, but they don't get it. What is there about going to the meal that would prompt them to argue over who's the greatest? Who sits where? Do you remember? In Jewish culture, what's the position around the table? Critical. Yeah, because okay, let's take this is the table, okay. What do we know that the main character sits here, and then what happens? Okay, whoever, okay, whoever you're right, my way. Whoever is the seat of honor. Next one, next one, next one, next one, next one. Who argued about that kind of stuff? Who made that stuff such a big deal? The Pharisees. And what did Jesus tell them? You idiot. He didn't say it that way. Okay. But he called them out on it, didn't he? He said, instead of looking at the best seats, just go ahead and seat yourself where? At the lowest seats. But they traditionally, the Jewish, the Jewish hoi polloi, argued over position. What does that tell you about the disciples? They did the exact same thing. Do you mean to tell me that, that saved people can get all concerned about the same goofy stuff that unsaved people can get concerned about? And can argue over, me, 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 get noticed? Surely that doesn't happen in churches. Surely that doesn't happen amongst preachers or teachers. The same stuff happened. He predicted, now remember, he predicted a kingdom. He talked about, you know, the greatness and all this. And so they've been hearing all about this. And so the irony is they have the same type of argument. They're, they're Jesus, according to Luke 22, in route he says to them, don't be like the Gentiles. Okay? Don't seek to be served but seek to... Okay, he's told them that. If we understand Luke 22, it's happening in the way. They get to the house, and if Jesus just told you, seek to serve, what would be the first thing that should come to your mind for service? What action of service could you take? You first walk into a door, into the room, the first thing that's supposed to take place wash feet. And it's usually done by who? The servant. The very first thing that you would think, okay, if I'm going to serve others, I could do this. But not a single one of them does it. Why? They may have stopped the argument in their, with their mouths, but, you know how, did you ever have this? Did any of your kids ever obey on the outside, but they were still disobeying on the inside? They were still, Okay. Okay, So you have that whole, whole thing going. Now Jesus, okay, the meal when you come in, just to give you, here's a little bit of background. Okay, They think it's a U-shaped table because that was common for the Passover meal. So service could be done in the middle. Their feet are extended out, which by the way leans towards and lends to that whole idea of washing their feet. And they're there. Jesus comes in and John chapter 13, 1 and 2 is so revealing. So revealing about Jesus Christ. What do you learn in, just the, in John 13, verse 1 and 2? 30 seconds here. What do you learn about Jesus? And before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. What do you learn just there? What do you know about Jesus? Humility. Anything else? Is his, is his greatness shown in other ways? What about his knowledge? Does he have? Does he have superior knowledge? Does he have superior compassion? Okay, I've I've strained you to the very end. Okay, held you up long enough. You need a break. Okay, we'll pick up with that Passover meal next time we get together next Sunday.